0: I'd like to talk to you this morning about Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. We find before us a a great victory that uh, the Lord brought to pass in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse number one, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. This is the third year of the drought, uh, the famine that was in the land that God brought down upon evil Ahab. In the third year, saying, go and present yourself to Ahab. I've uh, I've underlined that, present yourselves, because there are times in our life that uh, we have to stand up as a representative of God. If you look over in uh, verse number 3 of chapter 17, right across the page, you remember last week we talked about Uh, The Lord told told Elijah to go hide. There are times in our life that we have to uh, get out of the public eye. And then there are times in our life that we have to get right out in the center of everything. And we find now Elijah doing both of these things. In chapter 17, he hid himself. In chapter 18, he presented himself. Uh, both of these uh, Both of these times uh, was related to Ahab, the most wicked king in Israel, and uh, the Lord says, "Listen, Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth I want, I, this is your message. go tell him it's finally going to rain. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken one hundred prophets and hidden them fifty to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. Things had gotten so bad that Ahab had to go out personally. remember this is the king and his second in command. Obadiah to look for some water, a spring, a well somewhere, some grass that was growing to save uh, his own livestock had become that bad. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, go into the land, to all the springs of water and all the brooks, perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. And they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went, went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, Elijah. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah is here. Elijah's coming out of hiding after three years, and uh, he is headed uh, to the Oval Office of Ahab. Uh, he, he just happens to bump into Obadiah. And uh, he says, listen, I want you to go tell Ahab I'm here. And Obadiah says, no, I'm not going to do that because you have this habit of disappearing. You are a good person of disappearing. And he says down in here in verse number 12 that you disappear by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, as you read through the Old Testament, you find uh, incident after incident of uh, the Holy Spirit coming on the scene and doing something special. Now, we know today that we're living in the age of the Holy Spirit. It began on the day of Pentecost. We call this the age of grace or the age of the Holy Spirit. But here we find that Obadiah knew all about the spirit of the Lord back there in verse number 12. He also said something else very interesting at the end of verse number 12. He says, but I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. He said, I've been a follower of Jehovah since I was a young person. Now, every time I see something like this in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible... It reminds me of what we call, or you've heard before, remember we had the Filipino pastor here, and, uh, and he was telling us about the 4-14 window, and uh, the statistics uh, are something like this, that 80% of the people who come to Christ come between age 4 and age 14. Now, this is why we need to exert most all of our energy in the church in that direction, Uh, Because those young people have a greater uh, opportunity, a greater window of opportunity to come to Christ as a young person. As someone grows older, that that window begins to close. You don't find too many real old people coming to Christ. But you find a, a lot of them as young people. And so here we find Obadiah. Obadiah says... Uh, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. And so uh, Elijah said in verse 15, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. He said, listen, I'm determined. You have my word. And so uh, he shows up uh, in front of Ahab. And Ahab sees him coming and says, listen, you are the one who troubles Israel. Verse 17. And I like what uh, I like what Obadiah did. He kind of said, "Listen, you're not getting away with this." Because a prophet of God really needs to be courageous and honest. He said, "No, you're the one. Not I. You're the one who is the troublemaker in Israel." And then he gave him reasons in verse number 18. Look. It says, "You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. This is why we have the drought. This is why we have the famine." You have brought down the judgment of God upon your nation. You are the evil one. And so at this particular time, Elijah uh, begins to tell Ahab what to do. He says, listen, I want you to get uh, the nation of Israel out here. I want you to gather the prophets of Baal, and we're going to have a contest. And we're going to see who the real God really is. And we're going to put some... uh, sacrifices up on an altar and we're going to call down fire from heaven and we're going to see who responds in that way. And so the contest uh, took place. The prophets of Baal, they prayed to Baal and of course there was no one home. No answer came. And then of course Elijah prayed and boy uh, before he did that the Bible said something very important in verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. It was broken down. Uh, remember, uh, the worship of Jehovah was a, was a minority in Israel at this particular time. And the, the, the altars that people used to sacrifice on were destroyed. They were torn down. They were neglected. And here he finds uh, one that had been broken down. And he says, listen, uh, this is the altar. We're going to start raising up the altars that have been broken down in Israel. We're going to bring them out of hibernation. And I'm going to be the one to start the process right here. Uh, He repaired the altar of the Lord. Uh, He called fire down from heaven. And, of course, his God, Jehovah God, responded uh, to that and he did it at verse number 6 during the evening sacrifice. And the purpose of all of this contest is found in verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God. This whole drought, this whole judgment of God upon the nation of Israel was according to Elijah to let the people know, hey, listen, there is a God in Israel and that you have turned your hearts back again to him. Uh, Elijah's expecting revival here of a nation that's gone astray. That's his goal. Okay, that's the, that's the story in a nutshell. First of all, Elijah presents himself in verse number 1. Elijah was prepared for this mission. I believe the Lord sometimes uh, calls our number. And we're the next man up. We really are. Uh, He had, Elijah that is, had a very restful three years out there by the brook Kareth and then in the home of the widow of Zarephath. Uh, He had been hiding away. The Bible says Ahab was looking for him this whole time. Now I think that Ahab had a lot of resources at his disposal. And if anybody could have found Elijah, Ahab could have. But maybe God made uh, Elijah invisible. Uh, That wouldn't be without precedent. I remember reading the story of Corrie Ten Boone. Corrie Ten Boone uh, tells the story in her book when she was in Ravensbruck concentration camp in Germany. And she was trying to uh, uh, smuggle her Bible into the concentration camp. She prayed to the Lord and she said, Lord, uh, help them not to see me as I go into the camp. And she walked right past the guard, and she said, it was though he didn't see me. Uh, She thought that God had made her invisible. Maybe the Lord made uh, Elijah invisible during this three-year period that Ahab was on his trail. Uh, I don't know, but Ahab couldn't find him. And all of this time, God was preparing him for this incredible confrontation between good and evil. Uh, we're supposed to be ready, the Bible says. First Peter 3.15, you know that. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give a defense to everyone who asks you with humility and, re- and respect. Always be ready, Peter says, to give a defense. Always be ready. What do you think that consists of? If God would ask you today, are you ready for me to call your number? Are you ready to step up? Well, I think it has something to do with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Uh, I was reading this the other day, and it just really uh, spoke to my heart. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Now that word sanctify means to set apart. May sanctify you completely, not partially, but completely. All of you. God wants all of you and all of me. And may your whole spirit soul and body, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Thessalonian church, this must be your goal. You must be set apart completely in spirit, in soul and body, and in that order. This is the hierarchy uh, of sanctification right here. First of all, he says, "I I want the area in your life that is your spirit. And that's the place in our life where we develop a relationship and a friendship with God. Whenever you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, God sends his spirit to live in your spirit. And he makes you alive to God. We call that being saved, being born again by his spirit. And immediately we fall in love. Now follow me. We fall in love with Jesus Christ because God puts the love of Jesus Christ in our heart. You know, when you talk to a person who is unsaved and you say, do you love God? That's probably the farthest thing from their imagination. They may have never heard of that before. But whenever a person is saved, they realize that what God did for them on the cross. And, you know, when we see what Christ died upon the cross for our sins, it it just elicits. It just evokes love from our heart for what Christ has done for us and we begin to have this relationship and friendship with God it all begins there in our spirit and then it bleeds out through our soul and what is that? That's our emotions, our mind, our will, our decision-making process when we are saved we begin to make decisions based not on our will but his will based not on what we think or what someone else tells us but by what the Bible tells us to do. We begin to make those those decisions. That's the development and maturing of our emotions and our decisions based on God's Word. And then finally, the body. Everything that we have belongs to God. Spirit, soul, and body. Now, we don't know where the spirit and soul is in our life, and but God does. Hebrews 4.12 says talks about the division of the soul and the spirit. And we believe that only God knows exactly where that is in our being. But we are physical, we, we, are, uh, we are physical, and we are spiritual. And uh, the Lord says, listen, I want your body too. I want you to take care of your body because it's the temple of God. Uh, we have to have physical strength to do the ministry. If you've ever tried to do it, it's hard to do. Uh, it, it pries on your emotions, it pries on your body, you have to be strong. And so this is what the Lord wants from you and me. He wants us to be completely set apart in our spirit first, because that's where it all begins, our relationship with God. And then he wants us to begin to make good decisions based on the teaching of God's word. And then... Finally, he says, listen, I want all of your body to take care of it. It's the temple of God. It's the only place that God has to live in you while you're here on earth. So we need to be separated to God in all three of these areas. That's when we become ready. Uh, In Mark chapter 631, Jesus said, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there are many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. We can't always put our pedal uh, to the metal. Uh, We can't always run and run and run and not stop. Uh, we We have to come and be refreshed. And this, I said all of that to say this. Elijah was drinking from the well of God's presence for three years. Now just think of this. Three years. He is drinking from the well of God's presence. He's getting ready. God is sanctifying him, separating him, doing a deep, powerful, incredible work in his heart. And it all started when God said, listen, I want you to hide yourself. Get out of circulation. I don't need you for a while, but I'm going to need you in about three years. And so now we have this clash between good and evil. Confrontation. This confrontation would be harder than the first one. Remember the first one, he went to Ahab and he said, listen, it's not going to rain. And Abraham, Ahab probably thought, oh, all right. But now the effects are everywhere. Ahab and his trusted second lieutenant Obadiah is out looking for water. Obadiah, the name, means servant of the Lord. Here we find in Ahab everything that's wrong with the world. And in Obadiah, everything's right, everything is right with the world. And we have them working together. Now, this is is interesting. We have them working together side by side in the same administration. Good and evil, side by side. A believer in high places. I believe that one of the ways that God moves on kings is through their associates. Actually, I was just reading yesterday in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel? Daniel. Then his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and who, Abednego, remember him? Uh, The Lord put them in a strategic position, actually on the staff of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is one evil guy. But here we find Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, four really committed believers in the same administration. Now, the question always arises, should I get out of this bad place or not? How much of this bad place can I stand? We live in a very wicked world. And I hate to say too much about that in the church because you get fed that all week long. You know how wicked it is. We live in a wicked world. It's all around us. And, and sometimes we ask ourselves, well, in my environment, should I run away from this? I think that every situation needs to be taken individually with a lot of mature Christian counseling. Here in the church people come to us and say this is our situation, it's terrible, should I run away? And sometimes we say run as fast as you can go. Get out of that. Don't think again about it. But in other cases it's uh, it's something different, it's not that. It's just that God has placed us in a very tough spot, and we can't always be running away from those spots. In fact, that's what Jesus prayed when he prayed in John 17. He said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Sometimes we feel like we'd like to get out of this world. Amen. Amen. I don't pray, uh, he's praying to the Father and he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Protect them while they're in the world. We're called to be salt and light. And the stories uh, there are, with, they are without number of how one simple solitary light turned the light on for so many in darkness. I like the story of William Borden. Uh, you'll have to look at it in detail when you go home. William Borden was the heir to the Borden Milk Empire. They had lots of hopes for him. Uh, when he graduated from high school, his parents sent him on a trip around the world, uh, just as a gift for graduation. And in his trip around the world, he, uh, he fell in love with people. And he wrote back and he said, God's calling me to be a missionary. And, of course, this sent shockwaves for the family. People said, listen, you can't do that. You'll throw your life away. He said, no, I want to be a missionary to the Muslims in China. And so he came back home and uh, he entered Yale University. In the first year, he organized some prayer groups. He had about 100, 150 people in Yale praying in prayer groups. By the time he graduated the fourth year, he had 1,000 students in prayer groups of the 1,300 students that were in Yale. And he wrote, uh, he decided, uh, he went on to seminary and he decided to give his part of the fortune away. And so he began to give it away. Uh, and he wrote in his Bible these words: "No reserve." He wanted to live by faith, not off his fortune. No reserves. After he uh, got through seminary, he decided to. He wanted to go to China, but he wanted to go via Cairo, Egypt, and stop there and learn some of the language before he went on. Uh, and as he was leaving, he wrote again in his Bible no retreat no reserves no retreat when he got to Cairo, Egypt he uh, only was there a few months and he died of spinal meningitis and uh, his family found his Bible and looked in it and he had something else written there Uh, no reserves no retreat no regret No regret. Before he died, he wrote that. Uh, His life has inspired thousands of people to lay their life down for Christ. Thousands of people have stood up and said, I will be like William Borden. None of us know how long we will live, and I'm sure he had great hopes for the future. Uh, But God had other plans for him, and his testimony still lives today. When he entered the university, everything was going in the wrong direction, and in four years, he turned it around in the right direction, had all these people praying. The power of God was upon him. Obadiah was uh, a similar figure in early life. Uh, Obadiah is a popular name in the Bible I understand it's used there are about 13 of them so if you get confused it's okay but he feared the, the Lord from his youth and Obadiah hid the schools of the prophets so that Ahab couldn't kill them God used them in a great way what were the schools of the prophets uh, they were training grounds for new young prophets These students were devoted to the service of God in preaching and praying and praise. And Obadiah says, Listen, I've got to protect these. And God used him to do that. And all of us. And and so here we find the train of evil running right beside the train of good. Ahab is, is turning his nation into a group of idol worshipers. And Obadiah is saving the prophets. Um. Ahab is turning his country into an idolatrous cesspool. Jezebel, who is worse than Ahab, is killing the prophets. Someone said one time that Israel was ruled by Ahab and Ahab was ruled by Jezebel. I believe that. You read the story, you think that's true. Everything that was wrong with the world in Ahab uh, and everything that was right with the world in Elijah, came to a confluence, a, a crisis. And Elijah confronts Ahab. Now, here's a lesson for the church today. Uh, is it right to confront? It is. Who's going to speak up about evil if the church doesn't? Uh, Elijah, God called his number and he says, listen, you better step up and you better get out there and uh, you better say something. This is a suspenseful moment. Elijah takes charge. And verse number 19, he starts ordering everybody around telling Ahab what to do. Ahab is not as big and bad as he thought he was in the presence of a person who had spent the last three years in the presence of God. So here comes Elijah fresh from the presence of God. He's prepared. Ahab is no match for him. Well, uh, he's speaking the truth. Prophets in the Old Testament were had to speak the absolute truth. Ahab was outnumbered. Uh, and uh, today, you and I, we are way outnumbered in the task that God has called us to do. Uh, William Penn, the founder of the state of Pennsylvania, said this, right is right even if Everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. You never get to the right result doing the wrong thing. Uh, Now, Ahab thought he was the only one, and in this confrontation he was. But uh, I was reading one commentary, and the commentator said that he was the only one in public ministry. There were 7,000 others that had not bowed the knee to Baal, But Ahab was the only one who came out public. And so he made this challenge in verse number 21. Look at it. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And uh, verse 21, Elijah came to all the people. How long will you falter? You see the word falter there? The word falter there means hop. You heard me right, hop. How long will you hop? between two opinions. And the metaphor is a bird uh, hopping from branch to branch, not knowing exactly where to settle. He's saying, that's what the nation of Israel is doing now. You're hopping around. You don't know where to settle down. You have to settle down and you have to take a side and not be neutral. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Matthew 12, 30 says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me, scatters abroad. There are only two forces in the world, the gatherers and the scatterers. There's no neutrality with Christ. Jesus said, if you're for me, you're for me. If you're not for me, you're against me. I know a lot of people would like to be neutral, you know, so they don't have to make a decision. But a person who says they're neutral has already made a decision. And the decision is not to accept Christ. Now, the fire was to come down from heaven. Remember, fire was a symbol of God's presence. Remember, the Lord led the nation of Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Fire is an emblem of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's a, Fire is a sign of God's judgment. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And anyone, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of what? Fire. That's the final doom for those who decide to pay for their own sins. And you don't have to make a conscious decision to do that, necessarily. You just just have to do nothing. And if you do nothing, this is the ultimate end of it all. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the penalty that a person will have to pay for their sins on earth. But thanks be to God, we don't have to pay that penalty. Jesus paid that penalty for us on the cross. And that's why we want to come to church and praise Jesus. Because when this day comes, uh, a believer will not be there. We are saved by the grace of God. Now, Satan could have sent this fire down and mystified everybody because, remember, he had done that before back in Job. Job. Uh, in fact, Revelation 13 says Satan performs great miracles, even making fire come down from heaven. But Satan was only a spectator to this grand performance by God. God spoke fire down from heaven. But before he did that, Elijah repairs the altar. And I think there's a lot here for us today. The altar is a place in our life where we worship God. Boy, I was just reading about this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. And the Lord says, listen, I want you to make an altar. And, and this is what he says in Exodus 20, 24. I will come to you and I will bless you. Now listen to this, please. The Lord says, listen, if you make your altar, I will come to you. And I will bless you at your altar. Um, Just a a week or so ago, there was a young couple here in our church, and I introduced myself to them. And and, uh, the gentleman said, I grew up in Ohio, and I went to the Akron Baptist Temple in Ohio. And I knew that church for years. At one time, it was the largest church in the country. And uh, they had a a founding pastor uh, who built that church from nothing over there in Akron, Ohio. Dallas Billington was his name. And he had a famous saying, and I always remember it. He said, the altar is the place where man meets God, and God meets man. That's the altar. Uh, That's what God said in the Bible. When you build an altar, I'll meet you there. And this is what he did. He built an altar. He got 12 stones that were broken down, which represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And there he says, he put the sacrifice on, and God spoke from heaven by fire. Uh, you know, that's, in order for us to have a victory in our world, we have to repair our altars. The altar that we once had. And It doesn't have to be stones made out of anything like put in your backyard, but it just could be that special chair you used to sit in in the family room and, and you had your Bible there and you talked to God. That was your altar. Uh, could be some other special place that you created your altar, but you know altars uh, uh, fall into disrepair if you don't use them. And so, so he said, "Listen here, let me." Elijah said, "I'm going to be the first one to start building up the altars again." And so he put all these stones together, and he started to build, repair the altar of the Lord, and uh, and then uh, the it took place the angels were in the grandstand and the Bible says in verse 36 he did it at the time of the evening sacrifice and this is interesting because for about 50 years now they are not going up to Jerusalem to, to worship remember this Ahab didn't want that uh, they had their little altars and he was in the process and Jezebel was in the process of breaking these altars down and Elijah said listen I'm going to be the first one to start building them back up again and I'm going to do it at the time of the evening sacrifice. What, uh, what is that about? Uh, well, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 29 that there were to be daily sacrifices of two lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening. The morning sacrifice of the lamb was to be at 9 o'clock, and the evening one was to be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Jesus is our lamb. He's our Passover lamb. They hung Jesus on the cross in the morning at 9 o'clock. And Jesus died in the evening at 3 o'clock. Jesus was the morning and the evening sacrifice. Well, he's our lamb. He died one time uh, for the sins of all mankind. And so this is the glorious message that we have at the church. Uh, God accepted the offering that Jesus made for your sins when Jesus died on the cross in your place. And all you have to do is reach out in faith and say, Lord, I believe this message. I retrieve this message. I embrace this message. I want you to be my Savior, Lord. And send your spirit into my heart. Send the fire, the Holy Spirit, into my heart. Now his goal is in verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord. This is his goal. Lord, I want them to know you and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Well, the fire came down... Jehovah showed to them who he was. Uh, But Ahab, Ahab departed. And you know what he did? He went to a feast. As soon as this powerful manifestation of God is concluded, Ahab's first thought is to feed his flesh. Uh, He heads up to his pavilion to eat and to drink. No conviction on his part. No concern over the dead prophets of Baal. No hint of sorrow or repentance. Ahab cares for nothing but Ahab. He's a sad figure. He really is. No repentance on his part. But you know what Elijah did? This is interesting. There's just so much in this chapter. You know what Elijah did after the fire came down? He went, he climbed up the mountain on Mount Carmel and went to the Father in prayer. Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel to meet the Father, and even though The Baal prophets were dead and gone. There was still work to be done. And it was time for the man of God, who believed God, to call on his name and finish the task. You know, there are many confrontations of evil that you and I get into, and sometimes we feel, okay, my work is done. It's not. Your work will never be done until you're done. That's when the work is done. Uh, Here we find Ahab celebrating, hey, we're going to get rain. Let's, let's have a party. And uh, Elijah climbs back up the mountain. He begins to pray. And he says, Lord, uh, you accepted the offering. Now give us the rain. And he was persistent in his prayers. Remember, he had a servant up there. And he said, listen, I'll pray here. And you go see if there's any rain. And he sent him out about seven times. Just keep looking for rain. And he came back. Is there any rain? No, there's no rain. Go out again and look. And so Elijah is praying and praying and believing. He's believing that the answer was on the way, and that's what we have to do. We have to pray like Elijah until the job is done. When will it be done? Not in your lifetime. When will it be done? When will you have to stop praying for the rain to come and revival to come and people to be saved? I don't think you will. He kept praying and he kept sending his servant to look to the sea. And all of a sudden, he came back and said, Listen, I see a cloud. It's a little one. And Elijah said, Listen, there's a lot of rain in that cloud. Well, if we are ever going to see real success in our prayer lives, we must learn to pray with expectancy. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Now, there are just a few lessons, and we're finished. My question to you today in the church is is this. Are you preparing to be used by God? Are you being prepared? Are you separating yourself, first of all, in your spirit? Are you born again? Do you have a connection with Jesus? Are you allowing your born-again experience to affect your daily decisions in life, your soul, your emotions, your will? Are you controlled by the Holy Spirit? And then are you sanctified in body as well? Are you taking care of yourself? To build up your, your body and strength and stamina? Are you preparing to be used by God? God's going to call your number. He really is. I want you to be ready to be stepped up. Um, are you preparing the altar of the Lord? Maybe you're here. Somebody walked out of the service last night in our Saturday night service and said, oh, I really needed that. Because, you know, it's so easy for an altar to fall into disrepair when we don't use it. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and your altar has collapsed, let's start building it up. Find those broken stones and put them back together again. And then follow in the footsteps of Elijah. Uh, Don't straddle the fence. If God is God, let's serve him. If he isn't, don't. But if he is God, serve him. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, uh, let me ask you this question one more time. Are you preparing to be used by God? Uh, God has a purpose for your life. It's just not for you to go through life and make a living. That's important. But it's for you to go through life and bring glory to God and revival to someone else's life. And you know, you can never spread revival until you bask in the presence of God until you come fresh from the presence of God, just like Elijah does. Now, God won't put you away for three years, I'm sure, but He'll put you away for a period of time until you can become strong. And then He'll call your number, and then you take your place among the people like David Brainerd and uh, William Borden and uh, Charles Spurgeon. And Obadiah, little Obadiah, God has a work for you to do. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our life. I just pray that the lessons that we've extracted from this passage will live in our heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our invitation song. And as we sing, if you'd like to come and pray, please do.